you'd like to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, we're going to be closing out the first chapter. This is part of our series, Just That Simple, and it's called Just That Simple because the way God has ordained how people come to faith is by believing in Jesus. People believe, they put their belief and faith and trust in Jesus, and they receive eternal life. It's just that simple. And John shows us that through a series of encounters with Jesus, a series of signs that Jesus performs during his life and ministry, and then a window into his prayer life and into uh, his passion, that, that final week of, of going to the cross. So we're going to be looking at John 1, 35 through 51, and close out the first chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to understand this passage, we want to understand the words that are written so that it's not confusing. We want to understand the true meaning of this passage as it hit the ears of the original readers and listeners. And then, Father, we also want to apply this portion of Scripture to our lives. We want to follow you more faithfully. And, Father, we trust you to answer both of these these requests. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A first impression is a feeling or an opinion that you form about someone after a brief encounter. We make and, and make first impressions of, of other people all the time, and other people make first impressions about us all the time. And when we make these first impressions, we base them on externals. We base them on, on how someone appears, their, their body language, their, their hairstyle, whether they're attractive or not, um, their voice inflections. All, the, all this information is taken in very quickly. Psychologists say it takes seven seconds to form a first impression. That's all it takes. We, we, we bring all this information, our brain processes it, and boom, out comes our impression of the person that's standing before us. What about when it comes to Jesus? Is it possible for Jesus to make a first impression on people? And the passage that we're looking at this morning answers with a yes. It does. It is possible for Jesus to make a first impression. He makes a first impression on Andrew. He makes a first impression on Philip. And we're going to see exactly what that first impression was that he makes on these two men. And then we're going to ask the question, of course, that, that turns to application. What about us? Do we have an impression of Jesus? I think we all have an impression of Jesus. What is that impression based upon? Is it accurate? Because there, there may be some people here this morning that have uh, the wrong idea about who Jesus is. And I think that's based on a wrong first impression. So I have good news for you, if that's, if that's you. Let's read through this passage. This is John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This passage opens with an encounter with Jesus, and it says the next day. John is just kind of bringing us along one day at a time as Jesus begins his public ministry, and it says the next day, and we find John the Baptist in the same place, doing the same thing, pointing people to Jesus. He was speaking publicly, and he was going on the record saying, this man is the Lamb of God. He was giving his witness and his testimony about Jesus. And, and we see that John the Baptist had followers of his own. That's what it says when he, he says, it says, standing with two of his disciples. So John the Baptist had disciples, but those two disciples, as soon as they heard Jesus being identified, switched. They switched their allegiance. They, they went from following John the Baptist to following Jesus. And I don't want us to miss what's being modeled for us in these opening two verses. Look carefully. John the Baptist spoke. The two men heard. And then they followed Jesus. This is how God calls people. This is his ordinary means that he uses to call people to follow Jesus. People uh, speak the words of Jesus Christ. Other people hear the spoken or, or preached word. And then as a result of God working in their hearts, they believe in Jesus Christ. And there's our theme again. Just that simple. Jesus plus belief equals life. This is how God calls people. Romans 10.14 says this exact same thing, except it comes at it from, from the reverse angle. Look at this. And how, they are, how, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without something preaching? There it is, the exact same formula, except 
in reverse order. So someone speaks about Jesus, people hear about Jesus, and God calls some to believe in Jesus. That is how God calls people to himself. Followed in verse 37 means they literally started to follow Jesus. They fell in step behind him and they started walking with Jesus. But it also communicates this change in allegiance. They were following John the Baptist. Now they're following Jesus. They became disciples. And verse 38 says, Upon seeing these two men following him, Jesus asks a question. What are you seeking? You see, Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. And he knows that not everyone who says, I believe in you, not everyone who says, I'm going to follow you, are following him for the right reasons. Or who are really believing in him. And so he asks, what are you seeking? Are you seeking someone who will lead an uprising to overthrow the Roman government? Are you looking for a military messiah who, with the sword, will bring down the oppression? Are you looking for someone to start a revolution? Are you seeking the next big thing after John the Baptist? Maybe John's growing a little old, a little stale, and, and it's time for you to plant yourself in the middle of the next happening circle. So you want to get close to me. Are you seeking to advance yourself by attaching yourself to the this, this next big thing, this next guy that's going to have a meteoric rise to the top, and your plan is to ride his coattails all the way for worldly gain, whatever that looks like to you. Is that what you're seeking? Or are you seeking to learn more about me, says Jesus? Do you want to follow me? Are you trying to find more out about the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God? Is that what you're seeking? And they answer him by addressing him as rabbi. That's a Hebrew term that literally, literally means my great one. But it was a respectful, honorific title that people assigned to, to teachers. It was a way of showing respect. Rabbi, where are you staying? They're asking for a private conversation. They're saying, is there some place where we can talk? I, I want to find more about you. And Jesus answered them by saying, come and you will see. So that's a yes. He's saying, yes, I will show you. Yes, I will give you some of my time. And this all took place about the 10th hour, which is 4 p.m. So this was the beginning of their teacher-disciple relationship. In verse 40, we learn that one of these two new disciples was Andrew, Peter's brother. The other one might have been John. It doesn't tell us. It might have been. But it says, Andrew went to his brother and said, we have found the Messiah Christ. Now look at this first impression. He has not known Jesus for very long. And the first thing he wants to do is take someone else to Jesus. Jesus made such a first impression that the, the, the result was that this person, Andrew, says, I need to take someone else to see this man. He wants... To pass on this good news, he wants to show someone the man he met, who he believes is the Messiah and Christ. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, who just looked at him and renamed him. 
He renamed him Cephas, in the Greek Peter, which means rock or a piece of rock, depending on how it's spelled. Naming someone is an act of authority. So first of all, Jesus was exercising his authority over Peter by renaming him. But secondly, in the Bible, when God renames someone, he's saying, I'm, I know who you are, and I know who I'm going to allow you to become. And I'm going to rename you this person that I'm going to form you and shape you and make you to become. No longer are you Simon. I'm going to name you Peter. Because if we look in the synoptic, if you were to go back and look over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but if you look at the Gospels, how do they paint Peter? He's kind of a impulsive, um, reactive, uh, kind of a shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy. And Jesus says, I know who you are. You're not going to be unstable. You are going to be a rock-steady leader in my church. I'm renaming you right now, and I will take you to where I want you to be. From now on, you're Peter. The next day, he's taking us along step by step. The next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. So they were at the River Jordan down by where John the Baptist had his ministry activity. They're heading north now to Galilee. And this is where the bulk of Jesus' ministry and teaching took place. It was in and around Galilee. It said that Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. This is an example of a direct call by God on someone's life. It doesn't say that, uh, you know, Philip was seeking Jesus. It doesn't say that Philip was interested or, or starting to warm up to him. It says Jesus sought him out and called him. Again, this is a model for how God operates. We don't choose God. God chooses us. God comes to us in our sin and calls us out of it. Verse 44 tells us that Philip and Andrew and Peter, all from the same hometown, Bethsaida, that's a fishing village. It's located on the northern tip. If you've got a, a map in the back of your Bible, look, find the Sea of Galilee. It's right at the top. And then Philip found Nathanael, verse 45, and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They didn't have first names back then. This is how you would have identified someone. Who's your father? Where are you from? Joseph, son of Joseph, Joseph of Nazareth. That's how you identified somebody in the first century. So that's why he puts that label on him. Look at this impression, though. It's the same as Andrew. Philip was called by Jesus Christ, and one of the first things that he wants to do is take someone else to see Jesus. Same thing. That's the kind of impression Jesus makes on people. The first thing he wants to do, I want to take someone else to see this man who I found, who is the Christ. And, and look at and Philip, think about who this is. This is a common man from a fishing village. And he knew the Old Testament scriptures well enough to know that they contained a promise about a Messiah. He knew rightly that the Old Testament pointed forward to God's deliverer from the line of Abraham, from the line of King David, 
who would speak the words of God and deliver his people. Philip could plainly see the promise of the Christ in the Old Testament. A common fisher, fisherman from a nowhere town in the middle of rural Galilee. He saw it. Jesus is the word at the beginning who created the world. Jesus is the promised offspring of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the ark to which all people of God seek shelter in before the coming flood of judgment. Jesus is true Isaac, the only son of his father, offered up as a sacrifice. Jesus is also the ram caught in the thicket who is provided by God as a substitute blood sacrifice so that we, his true sons and daughters, do not have to die. Jesus is the true Joseph who is falsely accused, brought low, then lifted up and exalted and delivered his people from death by gathering them to himself. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood marks those who belong to him. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads his people out of bondage to sin. Jesus is the ultimate priest who continually intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is the ultimate king after so many flawed and failed judges and kings in the book of Judges, Kings, and Chronicles. Jesus is the one Job spoke about in Job 19.25 when he said, I know that my Redeemer, capital R, lives. Jesus is the Lord's anointed from Psalm 2 and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Philip saw that. He saw Jesus in the Old Testament. If we read the Old Testament and we can't see Jesus, then we're not reading it right. But Nathanael is not convinced yet. Verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which is what everybody downstate says about us. Just so you know. Can anything good come out of Chicago? Don't answer that. Philip's response, come and see. And many people have commented on Philip's response to Nathaniel and have said, yeah, this is the same approach we should apply when we find somebody who's skeptical about the things of God and about Jesus Christ. Because he didn't try to argue with him. He didn't try to prove it to him. He didn't pressure him or demand that he go see Jesus. He invited Nathaniel to check it out for himself. It's almost as if he's saying, don't, don't take my word for it. You, you decide. Check it out. Make up your own mind after examining the evidence. Now, why is this a good tactic to use with unbelievers? Because believers, peop, unbelievers don't put their faith in Jesus by being argued with or having his lordship proved to them or being pressured or intimidated or through the issuing of demands. God has told us how people come to believe in Jesus And the word is spoken, people hear, and when God's spirit is at work, they believe. And that's exactly what happened next. Look at verses 47 through 49, Nathanael and Jesus. Nathanael came to Jesus. Jesus spoke to him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is almost... Surely, a reference to Psalm 32, 2, which I'm going to read one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So when Jesus makes this comment about Nathaniel and says, in whom there is no deceit, and he couples it with the comment about being an Israelite indeed, he's saying, 
This man is a true Israelite. This isn't someone who just claims to be among the people of God. He is one of, the, of God's people. He's not just an Israelite because he's a descendant from Abraham. He's an Israelite because he's put his faith in God. He's saying, this man's the real deal. Jesus looked at Nathaniel and said, this guy's walk matches his talk. This man, with God's grace, to the best of his ability, loves God and seeks to follow him with an undivided heart. And Nathaniel answers and says, how do you know me? This was a compliment. Who are you to make that kind of a comment? Who are you to, I don't know you, you don't know me. You, you just walked up to me, I've never seen you before in my life. You can't just size me up and make a pronouncement like that. Who do you think you are? And Jesus answers by saying, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now this is a cryptic statement. We're not given an explanation and, and told exactly what Jesus means. There's been all kinds of speculation. Uh, some believe that Nathaniel was under a fig tree praying before he was called by Philip, and that's what he's referring to. Um, there, there's an old tradition that we shouldn't put much stock into, but says that Nathaniel's mother hid him under a fig tree uh, when Herod gave the order to strike down all the firstborn under two years in Bethlehem. Uh, still others look for, the, for, for fig tree in the Old Testament. They try to draw connections between every time. We don't know. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. It remains a cryptic statement. It remains between Jesus and Nathaniel, and that's the point. That's the point. No one else knows what he's talking about, but Nathaniel knows exactly what he's talking about. So there's something there that only Nathaniel and God know about. So he's, he's revealing his divine nature, and he's referencing that something that, that no stranger would, would ever be able to know just by walking up. And that is enough to convict Nathaniel. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God knows everything. When Nathaniel heard Jesus say, when you were under the fig tree, he knew, we will never know, he knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And it floored him. Whether it was good or bad. It was something that convicted him. It was something that convicted him of the truth that the man standing before him was the Son of God. Look at his response. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Skepticism, gone. Doubt, gone. In its place was devotion, immediate discipleship. That was all it took. This is an outburst confession from someone who just experienced a turning point on what they believe about Jesus Christ. 1551, Jesus concludes the conversation with a remarkable statement. First he says, good, I'm glad you believed when I told you I saw you under the fig tree. But you're going to see something greater than these. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is another Gospel of John distinctive. 
You will not find this formula, this truly, truly, amen, amen. It's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only in John. It's only spoken by Jesus. It's always at the beginning of some statement. And it's always some spiritual truth that Jesus wants his listeners to hear and reflect upon with a serious nature. If you have an ESV, you see a footnote, the you in verse 51, both of those yous are plural. So even though he's responding to Nathaniel, he's addressing everybody, every, all his disciples, anybody that happens to be around. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a clear reference to Genesis 28:12 with Jacob's ladder. I remember Jacob had a dream. He saw this ladder that connected heaven and earth and, and uh, angels going up and down. Genesis 28:12 says, "And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus is telling his disciples, "I am the ladder." I am the connection. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the one who brings the things of God down to people, and I am the only one who brings people into heaven. I am Jacob's ladder. And he ends by calling himself the Son of Man, and we should go ahead and get this out of the way. It's going to pop up again. This was Jesus' favorite self-designation. This, this is what he preferred to use when he talked about himself. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man means two different things. In the book of Ezekiel, God calls the prophet Son of Man several times, so it can mean a person. It, it can mean just a, a mortal man, a regular guy. Or it can be used as it's used in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is one that is presented to God the Father on clouds of heaven and is given everlasting dominion over every single nation, people, and language. The, the, the Son of Man is given a kingdom that lasts forever, and it's a clear reference to the divine Messiah. So it's both. So Jesus uses this term to describe himself. On one hand, it allows him to kind of fly under the radar and not push a confrontation with the authorities as opposed to saying, I am the king of Israel. That, that's going to get a response. But on the other hand, it, it makes people wonder, well, which one is he talking about? Is he just saying, I'm just some guy? Or is he claiming to be the one from Daniel 7? Is he claiming to be the Christ? Only one who is fully man and fully God can be the ladder or the bridge between heaven and earth. The Christ had to be a real flesh and blood man who would succeed where Adam failed. He had to be that, that mankind representative. But on the other hand, he also had to be divine because he couldn't be born with a sin nature like all of us are. And he had to be able to take the full wrath of God for the sins of God's elect. Quite a first impression that Jesus makes on these, two, on these two men. This is the first time Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. A summary of this passage would, would say this. John is showing us the account of Jesus calling his first disciples. And we can see that as soon as Andrew and Philip encountered Jesus, 
and became his disciples, they had this desire to bring other people to Jesus. And when talking with Nathaniel, Jesus displayed his divine knowledge and made a solemn divine claim to be the spiritual bridge between heaven and earth. I asked at the beginning if it's possible for Jesus to make a first impression on someone. I think this text has answered that for us definitively. Yes, yes, he made a first impression on these, on these two men. Their first impression after being saved was to go get someone else and bring them to Jesus. Both of them. Andrew to Peter, Philip to Nathaniel. They wanted to pass on this good news that they had found the Christ. And I think it's only fair to ask this question, do you have that desire? Do you have a desire to bring people to Jesus Christ? For those of us who are saved, we've been born again. Do we feel compelled to bring people to Jesus Christ? If you grew up in the church in the 70s or 80s, perhaps, uh, and you were in a youth group, you probably heard at some point the song Pass It On. It was written by Kurt Kaiser in 1969, and it, it captured this, this idea of, of wanting to bring people to Jesus. Listen, I'm just going to read a couple of lines. He writes, It only takes a spark to get a fire going, and soon all those around can warm up and it's glowing. This is how it is with God's love. Once you've experienced it, you spread the love to everyone. You want to pass it on. I wish for you, my friend, this happiness that I've found. You can depend on God. It matters not where you're bound. I'll shout it from the mountaintop. Praise God. I want the world to know the Lord of love has come to me. I want to pass it on. The reason why this song was so popular is because it captured that sense of urgency to bring Jesus Christ to someone else and to bring someone to Jesus Christ. This song puts to words the same feeling that Andrew and Philip had when they encountered Jesus. If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ and have no urge at all to bring someone to him, what kind of disciples are we? John Calvin wrote, Woe to our indolence if we do not, after having been fully enlightened, endeavor to make others partakers of the same grace. Indeed. When was the last time you asked someone to come and see? When was the last time you asked someone to come and check out Jesus for themselves? What are you doing on Sunday, 9.30? Why don't you come? I'll be there. When was the last time we invited someone to, to read scripture and say, you know what, I'll, I'll do it with you. Let's go through John. Let's just do a chapter a week and then we'll get together and talk about it. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, I think this is a fair question. Do you have the desire to pass it on like Andrew and Philip? I also talked at the beginning about how we all have an impression of Jesus. And what is that impression based on? And I also said that there may be somebody here that, that has a, the wrong idea about Jesus based on a bad first impression. Just something you've picked up 
uh, along the way because there are really only two sources where you can you can form your opinion on Jesus and, and base your first impression on him. It's either scripture or something else. That's it. There's really those two options, scripture or something else. So maybe you've got the wrong idea of Jesus because your impression has come from something else. Maybe uh, movies or media, please, I hope you don't base your opinion on Jesus on what's shown on TV. Please don't. Maybe well-meaning but uninformed friends or family. Um, false teachers or, or bad teachers, but people that aren't trying to lead you astray, they're just um, giving you wrong information. The internet. Uh, maybe your own thoughts about who Jesus is based on kind of a, a collection of, of snippets from sermons you've heard on the radio or the TV or or, or Sunday school when you were a kid, or just, just kind of a collection of anything that, that has kind of bumped into you from Jesus over the years. And maybe you've got a wrong first impression. Here are some, here are some possible first impressions of Jesus that, that people may have picked up. First of all, Santa Claus Jesus. He's just somebody there to give you whatever you want. In your time of need, he is there, and he'll pull out the big red bag and give you whatever you want. Healing, you got it. Money, you got it. Santa Claus Jesus. How about party host Jesus? He's just there to eat so we can have fun, right? Life abundant. If we're not laughing and having a good time, something's wrong. Baby Jesus, who never grows up, very cute, very cuddly, and also very non-demanding. Effeminate and weak Jesus. Jesus. This has been popularized by, by pictures of Jesus where he's kind of like this soft-skinned, quiet man just kind of moves slowly and very very soft-spoken. We hear meek and think it means weak, and so we have this picture of Jesus. Mysterious Jesus, someone shrouded in rites and rituals and uh, whispered prayers behind closed doors and uh, almost kind of this gothic figure who you have to light candles to and chant and, and be in the dark. Cold and personal judge Jesus. This is the one who has a booming bass voice and sits on the cloud with lightning bolts ready to Nail somebody who steps on a line. Irrelevant, Jesus. What does he have to do with me? Some guy 2,000 years ago, I don't, I'm, I'm doing okay at work. In fact, I'm doing really good at work. Why do I need Jesus? Well, if, if any of these have been your first impression, I've got good news for you. He's none of those. He's none of those things. Experts say that people tend to get attached their first impressions of others and they find it very difficult to, to move off or move away from those impressions, even when given a lot of evidence to the contrary. They tend to, to just kind of stay on that first impression. This is one of those times where it is critical to move away from a false first impression. If you have the wrong idea of Jesus, if you've gotten a bad first impression from someone or something along the way, now is the time to put that behind you and embrace the truth. How do we know the truth about Jesus? Scripture. Remember, that's it. There's the Bible and something else. It's, it's, that's it. Scripture. This is where Jesus can be found. And in our passage, what does it say? In verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. Heaven is opened through those who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone is the bridge and the connection point between people and God, between heaven and earth. 
talked with a woman one time about the things of God and I asked her, do you think you will go to heaven when you die? She said, yes. I said, why? And she said, because I'm not a sinner, much. You see, our self-impressions, our first impressions of ourselves is that we're not that bad. We could never experience the wrath of God. God. God would never pour out his wrath on me. I would never go to hell. God would never send me to hell. But scripture says we all deserve hell. Scripture says we've all sinned. None of us are, are perfect. And God demands perfect righteousness. God demands moral perfection. None of us have that. And this is the reason why Jesus is the only connection point between us and God. He's the only one that has the perfect righteousness that God demands. He walked his 33 years on this earth and he was morally perfect. He never did break one of God's laws in thought, in action. He did it. He did what no one else can do. He got it right. He got life right. Can anybody say they've gotten life right? I have not gotten life right. And scripture says none of us have. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one that has gotten life right. He's the only one that has what God demands. And the gospel says, when you put your faith and trust in him, his blood shed for you on the cross pays for all that sin that we've committed and his righteousness gets credited or imputed or reckoned to us so that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin and our lack of perfection. He sees the perfection of Christ. And on that basis alone, he's able to justify us, which means declare us righteous and allow us into the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus is the bridge. There is no other way. We can't make it on our own. They say first impressions are based on superficial factors like appearance and, and body language and how a person's dressed, attractiveness, general emotional state. Here's the thing about first impressions. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Have you ever experienced that? I, I know I've, had, I've gotten a first impression of something. I like, oh, think they're, they're really pleasant. They're really nice. And then I found out they're, they're not nice and pleasant at all. Or the opposite. Oh, oh, there seemed to be a total grouch. And then I learned out later, no, I caught them on a really, really bad day. They were a wonderful person. There is only one way to get an accurate impression. There's only one way to get a true impression of Jesus. And that is to look to his word. Come and see for ourselves. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks for Jesus, the one who got life right, the one who never sinned. And Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, which declares that all who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will have that perfect moral righteousness credited to them, will be declared righteous, will have their sin forgiven, and be welcomed into the kingdom of God forever. Father, we ask that 
we would not only believe upon this, but that we would be so moved and so motivated by this great truth that we would go out and want to bring others to see this Jesus, the one who saved us from our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'd like to ask you to please stand as we sing our song of response, It Is Well With My Soul.